This is the Podcast Inc. production. Booyah! This is the moment podcasting fans listening around the world have been waiting for. Coming to you not so live from a listening device of your choice. It's time! Podcasting out of this corner, a mixed martial talker, holding no professional record. He stands at six feet one and one half inches tall, weighing in at whatever he feels like, hailing out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, presenting the sometimes angry, always funny, Self-proclaimed podcasting champion of the world, Steve Fingerstyles! So, welcome to another rendition of the podcast. I am here once again, always again, and brought to you by Black Belt CBD. If you're into CBD products or you want to try CBD products for the first time, go to blackbeltcbdproducts.com, use promo code THEPODCAST25, you'll get 25% off. This is mostly aimed towards the athletes out there in the world, but if you're not an athlete and you're a blue-collar worker, or even if you sit at a desk all day, you get aches and pains as well. This works for everybody. Don't worry, there's no THC involved. You won't get high. It's good for everyone that needs, I guess, what is it, pain support? What the fuck is it called? I always fuck up on my sponsors. Not pain support. Um, um, pain management. There it is. Pain management. Okay. okay. Thank you. So yeah. pain management. Go to blackbeltcbdproducts.com. As you can see, Ryan, this is very professional here. Go to blackbeltcbdproducts.com. Use promo code podcast 25 They ship within North America. And if you're a woman that so happens to be listening to the show, like I say every week, thank you very much. And you could go to poppyapparel.com if you like to shop online. They have everything for any woman any needs, any type, any size, any season, everything a woman needs or wants at poppyapparel.com. Use promo code THEPODCAST. You'll get 10% off. They ship worldwide, and it's free shipping with $50 or more. And lastly, if you're into collectibles of any type or sort, if you're a nerd or if you're into nerd culture, if you like to collect sign collectibles or sign memorabilia, Go to firstroad.ca. They are a Canadian company. Everything is in Canadian funds. So if you're an American that likes to shop online, you'll get it pretty much at a cheaper rate than you would in the States. They update daily. Like I said, they have anything for your wrestling fans, comic book fans, video game fans, anything in between and out between, I guess, would be the opposite of in between. <laughs> so use promo code THEPODCAST20. You'll get 20% off. And lastly, please, if you want to support the podcast directly, go to Public. Dot com and if you want to make it easier just scroll down on your device that you're listening to it's right there i made it nice and easy for you click on the link there's they have everything from t-shirts to hoodies to onesies to pillows to stickers magnets anything you need or want that supports me directly so it really helps me out and obviously do all the nice stuff that i ask every week of supporting me by subscribing to apple podcast stitcher tune in soundcloud spotify heart radio please rate review that's very important as well just as important as supporting my sponsors and supporting myself directly so on to this week's guest 
you've heard him a little bit at the top of the show because I needed some help with my sponsors, but he is the author of NBA Jam the Book, actually my favorite book that I've read this year, to tell you the truth, Mr. Rayon Ali. Hey man, thank you so much for having me, pleasure to be here. No, thank you very much for coming aboard. So first and foremost, you were born in Dallas, you moved to Pakistan, and now you're back in the States again? So how did all this sort of happen? Because you don't have an accent, so you obviously you learned how to speak English in the States before you moved to Pakistan, I assume, right? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So I'm half and half. I'm uh, half white American, half Pakistani, half a brown man, half a white man. (laughs) And um, so, you know, when people uh, see me, they're like, they think I'm some kind of ethnic. They don't quite know what. Sometimes like they think I'm like Iranian or Greek or this or that. But I'm, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, half and half. So yeah, so I um, yeah, I grew up, uh, so I was born in Dallas. My parents split up when I was real young. And then I ended up uh, moving to Pakistan with my dad, um, which is where he's from, okay. uh, when I was real little. And then I decided, so that was from 5 to 15. And then, yeah, I think it was, yeah, it was, I think it was, um, it was 2001, right when I moved back. Oh, wow. And um, unfortunate coincidence, just before 9-11. Oh gosh, it was Shit. actually August 2001. Wow. What timing? What timing? Wow. Um, yeah. Did, did not, didn't see that one coming. Right? Definitely didn't see that one. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, no, no, no. So I've kind of had two different lives in that way. Like, you know, I was very immersed in American culture when I was over there. Right. Always had a soft spot for it. Um, and then, yeah, I my, actually, as a kid, my English was so good. It's kind of funny. Um, my, my uncle, um, who's Pakistani, he right. had these friends that would bring over their kids okay. who to hang out with me because my English was so good, which is weird. Like they think that like the kids would pick it up by osmosis. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But That's there was weird. a time like, you know, I'd lived there for so long. And when I came back when I was 15, mm-hmm. I did have a little bit of an accent, oh, okay. but that's long gone. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I've kind of been all over the place, uh, living in Ohio now, also okay. lived in New Mexico for a while. Oh, shit. Um, yeah. So, um, I've seen a lot of cool stuff, been to a lot of places, but yeah, half and half. That's me. So where's your favorite place that you've lived in so far? Man, are you talking about from, actually, you know what? I got to go, you know what? I'll just, I'll say I got to go with Columbus, Ohio, which is where I am right now. Got a big soft spot for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Living in New Mexico, I lived over in Santa Fe, which was very cool in terms of like the terrain is beautiful, um, but it's so small and sleepy. I mean, Uh, even with 75,000 people, it was the capital, but like the bands would never come to town. You'd have to go out of your way to go do cool stuff. And um, I would really start missing like even the Columbus isn't even that huge of a city. I mean, it's not like a Boston, LA, and New York or anything, but it's still a bigger city than a lot of them. Um, But no, Columbus is great. I have a, a big soft spot for it. So... And now I've been in Columbus, aside from the time that I moved to Santa Fe. Hmm. Um, so I've been here for probably about 10, 15 years, aside from those three years that I was in New Mexico. Oh, that's cool, man. That's awesome. Well, I guess being well-traveled also helped writing what we're going to talk about pretty much the whole podcast is NBA Jam the Book. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. And I had a different perspective on it uh, based on how I played it the first time. So, Okay. First off, how did this idea come to fruition? When did it pop in your head? When did you be like, I want to write a book about NBA Jam? Yeah. So it happened more that I wanted to write a book. And then NBA Jam ended up being that subject. So um, I ended up graduating from college. And I think it was 2000. Yeah, it was 2008. So I started doing my freelance writing in 2007. So this is the point where you're just writing for free, just doing whatever I can to get out there. Right. And I, um, 
you know, I interned at some places. I wrote for all these different, like, all weekly free papers and whatnot and some magazines. And then over the years, I got more and more experience. Um, so some big places I've written for are Rolling Stone, Spin, Wired, The Atlantic, nice. Complex, uh, American Airlines in-flight magazine. One wow. of those things I never thought I'd say. <laughs> but American, it's pretty cool being on a plane and you open it up and it's like, whoa, there's a teaser for my article in there. It was pretty cool. Right. Otherwise, I wasn't like, man, American Airlines in-flight <laughs> magazine wasn't on the bucket list. Right, right. But it went so like it was so cool to see it. Um, lots of places, yeah. Um, probably about 40, 50 places in total. Oh, wow. Mostly did music writing. Okay. So I interviewed lots and lots of bands, lots of musicians all over the place. Nice. Um, that was my bread and butter for a long time. And it was my day job for a bit, too, or like in terms of uh, the main thing that I was doing. Okay. I also did lots of WWE guys. Um, I actually, I, one time I interviewed Jim Johnston, who did the uh, the theme songs yeah. for WWE. Oh, yeah, very familiar. Music. Yeah, yeah uh, I interviewed him for The Atlantic, which was super cool talking okay. to him because I love his work. Right. Um Lots of WWE guys, Ryback. Uh, I don't know why he comes back to mind first. But it was Ryback, <laughs> of course, also Mick Foley. But first, Ryback, right. uh, Mick Foley, Daniel Bryan, uh, Dean nice. Ambrose, probably like ten or so guys. Lots of folks. Um, so yeah, I've had a lot of experience doing all kinds of uh, different kinds of interviews and writing for different places. Mike Tyson was another one. Oh, sure. Kesha was another one. Yeah. So lots of variety. But I knew I wanted to do something more substantial. Okay. Like when you're a freelance writer, you're writing short articles. You're writing at most a cover story about three thousand words. Right. So then, at some point, you know, this was 2012, 13, when I was like, okay, I've been writing for a few years. I want to do something that I can really sink my teeth into. Mm-hmm. So I came up with an idea for a music book, and it got rejected, which is what happens, part of the game. Sure. Then I pitched another music book. That one got rejected too. <laughs> it happens. I'm like, nope. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. I'm gonna. Eventually hit it big at some point. Right. And then I found this publisher called Boss Fight Books out of Los Angeles. And okay. they do individual books about video games. Mm. So um, they do very cool ideas with what they do with their uh, with their series. As in, you know, they'll do one book about Super Mario Brothers 2 oh. by one author. Another one about Super Mario Brothers 3 by a different author. Galaga, World of Warcraft, oh, wow. Earthbound, and so forth. Right. So they've done they've done probably about fifteen books or so by that point oh, nice. in 2015. Yeah, and but then I saw they had an open call for pitches, and I was like, man, I would hmm. love to write a book. Maybe this is the chance. Maybe this is it. And I was like, what is a story? What is a game that probably has a really good story mm-hmm. in terms of an audience that's out there that would like to read it? in terms of subject matter that has been written to death, right. in terms of it being an American developer that I could get access to. You know, I love so many Japanese games, but I can't access those guys. There's no right. way for me to go in talk to those guys. Um, so I really racked my brain. I was like, NBA Jam. I was like, got to do something about NBA Jam. I mean, <laughs> like, you know, the people are still alive. They're American. I knew Midway very well because I love Mortal Kombat. Actually, before I was a freelance writer, first gig was writing on a Mortal Kombat website. Oh, nice. This is actually when I was back in Pakistan. Yeah, I was oh, like wow. 12 or 13. Yeah, yeah. So I go way back with that. Um, that was my very first writing gig, so it was very full circle for me. Right. Um, so yeah, so I pitched it to Boss Fight Books. I went way above and beyond. I did uh, a 37-long-page pitch. Oh, 37 wow. pages. Most people, I think they did like up to maybe eight or ten pages, but I was like, I really, Jeez. really want this. <laughs> right, I, right. Like, I basically wrote the book in this pitch, um, like right there. Okay, gotcha. This is yeah. 2015. 
yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I came up with everything. I even came up with the idea for what the cover would be, mm. you know, a ball set on fire. I was like, oh, you know, it needs to be this, it needs to be that. I came up with right. marketing ideas. I really went all in. Nice. And, uh, yeah, and then they said, okay, we'll get back to you within a couple months. Okay. Then I heard back from them within a month, and they said, yeah, we want to talk to you soon. I was like, okay, this is either really good or really bad. Right. And they said, yeah, well, actually, we want to talk to you in a few, like, in three weeks. So I was like, okay. And uh, I talked to the publisher, Gabe Durham, on the phone, and he was vetting me to see how serious I was about this and right. was it really the real deal. And then he said, then he was convinced, uh, luckily enough, and um, he said, yeah, let's make a book. So years later, now I finally got MAJM the book. Wow, that's awesome. So I'm assuming you're a long life video game fan. You've played, you've been a gamer your whole life. Definitely, definitely. I'm one of those people that goes through ebbs and flows. Okay. Honestly, for me, mostly it cuts off probably around like 2001 or so. Gotcha. Um, a lot of those retro games, like there's still so much good stuff that I always feel like I have to catch up. Like I go back through Nintendo games, love Nintendo games. Right. There's always more games I can play and, you know, going back and playing them, it's like listening to the same song over and over again. I just love those songs so much. I want to listen to them. And the same thing goes with some of those old games. So, yeah, to give you an idea of my history, it's been NES. Okay. to Sega Genesis, right. Sega Mega Drive, actually over in Europe, or we got the European version over Pakistan. Okay, gotcha. That's where I played B Jam Tournament Edition for the first time. Oh, okay. Then from that to, uh, to PlayStation, PlayStation to Dreamcast, there was a Game Boy okay. Color in there somewhere. <laughs> right. And then it was all PlayStation. It was PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, and PlayStation 4. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I've had a little bit of everybody in there, right. so I just really love video games overall. I don't really have brand loyalty too much, aside from me, by picking up PlayStations, because it's what I recognize nowadays. Right. Um, but, yeah, way. I love video games. Definitely, I'm not super plugged into current video games, but, you know, I've been playing a lot of Mortal Kombat 11, still playing a lot of Injustice 2. I love fighting games, okay. but I mean, especially old games and arcades, like, they have a special place in my heart. Right, me too. Like, uh, I don't know if they were on my top five, but they were probably my honorable mentions where I mentioned my top five favorite video games on an episode. But Mortal Kombat is one of them, and so is NBA Jam. Like, those two things, that is like my childhood. Going, to me, it was at the local corner store, the local, uh, 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 what is it, video rental store where they used to rent videos and stuff. In the back, they have the NBA Jam, they had the Mortal Kombat lineups, people yelling, just like how you described it in the book pretty much. Like, it was so vivid. And I think that's why I read, like, I literally read the book in two days. No joke of a lie. And I think that's why it was so fast to read. And it felt like I wasn't, time wasn't even going by because it was almost like I was reliving my past, if that makes sense. That's a huge compliment, man. Thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to go for is that, you know, bringing you back to the time when, you know, people were playing arcade games and that was where video games were. And, you know, it seems kind of like, I mean, back in the 90s, the idea of the arcades ever being not where you'd find the absolute, you know, best games in terms of technology right. seemed just kind of crazy. But now, of course, the world's a different place. But, yeah. no, I loved arcades. And, um, I mean, honestly, when it comes to, like, a specific format, arcades might be my single favorite because, you know, I've got all these classics over there. I love the idea that each arcade game is its own experience. You know what I mean? Like, True. you play a PlayStation game, and you're still using the same controller. Right. Maybe you've got a peripheral here or something <laughs> like that. But each arcade game has its own side art. It has its yep. own marquee up there, its own control panel. The screen looks a little bit different. You know, you might have a driving game, you might have a gun, you might have this, you might have that. Right. And I love arcade games. And uh, over in Pakistan, uh, we had a few arcades, not nearly as many as you'd find in the States, but we had okay. some of them. So, for example, we had Mortal Kombat right. uh, over at a Pizza Hut. 
Oh, wow. And uh, it's Street Fighter 2, yeah. Okay. Um, but no NBA Jam. So certain things traveled and certain things didn't. Right. So NBA Jam, for example, I played on uh, the Mega Drive, on the Genesis. Right. And then I played in the arcade version until probably, what's funny, probably like maybe eight or ten years ago. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah. So I knew it well. Like I'd seen like screenshots and things like that in magazines. I knew it was good. Right. Like the arcade version. But uh, I grew up with the, the Sega Genesis version, um, but I always loved arcades. Oh, man. So did I. Like I said, I, I could talk on and on about arcades, but let's let's go on back onto the book. Well, the first thing I noticed about reading the book, uh, obviously it was very well written, of course, but the love and all the work you put into it, like like the little stats, the dates, like you knew it all. Like one example that just pops into my head early on in the book where the first arcade of NBA Jam was ever put in. Like you even went into the backstory of the Greek immigrant and everything. And even to the details of the Midway guys going out for a slice of pizza, it was a New York slice and the way they came up with everything. How important was all these details to get in, into the book? They were very important. I mean, I think that's what makes it real. I mean, specificity is what sets really good writing apart from uh, not bad writing, but like kind of like writing that's okay. Right. You know, the more you feel like you're within the space or within that scene, um, the more alive that it becomes. So, yeah, what's... Um, What's really cool about that whole chapter, the first one where I go and back to Dennis's place for games in Chicago in late 992 when they play NBA Jam for the first time, right. that's all composited from different things. So I went through like old newspaper articles that talked oh, about wow. this arcade. Okay. I went through pictures. I found like a Yelp listing for the arcade and there's like a picture somewhere, um, wow. like a timeout, uh, timeout magazine had did a little article. So there's bits and pieces. And then I had interviews that I did with people who were there. Okay. Um, things like that. You know, you mentioned the, the Greek immigrant. He's still alive actually. Shut up. And he's still, he is. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I tracked, I tracked down his family. I didn't, end up, I wasn't able to talk to him for the book. He's actually not in very good, uh, health uh, anymore. Okay. He was kind of older back then and he's yeah. really old now. Um, <laughs> Yeah, his family still operates. They're still in the amusement business. They operate uh, photo booths. You oh, know, wow. weddings, you go to those photo booths. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they ran out of photo booths. Um, oh, so it's amazing cool. that they're still in that, that kind of business. I mean, it's not an arcade game, but it's still, you know, a, a big entertainment thing that you step inside. Sure. Um, that was so important for me, is to be able to make you feel like, okay, you're there. Like, it's specific. It's not just like, you know, I know when people see NBA Jam, the book, the mm. first thing they'll say is like, I love that game. And that's why they'll... Take, uh, take notice of it sure. and I appreciate that you know that gives me an opportunity to say okay great all right that's absolutely great calling card that's a good way to get started but beyond that I wanted to add a story at people over there at a plot you know highs and lows like it is you aren't you know you're paying in some ways to just see NBA jam like see it read about NBA jam but I'm like okay well there's so much more to it right so I really went above and beyond I did 68 interviews. I probably went overboard. 68 interviews, though. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we'll get into yeah. some of the people you, you interviewed afterwards towards the end of this. But the other thing is that this book is not only just for NBA Jam lovers. It's for arcade lovers, for video game lovers. Like, you have the history of how all this shit happened. You talk about Pong, Space Invaders, Pac-Man. You even cover Nintendo, Sega, Atari. Like, you, like you literally go on a roller coaster of the whole video game from, I guess, start to finish, Right. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I'm, I when like even uh, I wanted to start back even further to like the very first ever video game, like not even Pong, like the very like at that point I was like, okay, this is going to overboard. Um, it's like we don't need to go all the way back then, right. but I was like, it'd be cool to be like, okay, in some ways uh, the story of NBA Jam is connected to all of 
video games. Um, like the entire lineage of video games was what I could use. Right. So yeah, I start off the you know the first the prologue is all about Dennis's place for games in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first chapter is about how did arcades become a thing? You know, what was Pong? And Pong is a really central, it's like a little motif in the book, you know, because it shows up, you know, Mark Turmel, the lead programmer of NBA Jam, loved it. That was the first time that he really loved a game. He still has that uh, Pong unit that his parents bought for him from Sears back in the 70s. That's crazy. Um, Yeah, I wanted to do all of it. I was really, I was really ambitious with it. I was like, let's go in, let's get as much (laughs) history as we can, as many people as we can, as, as much perspective. But then at some point, you also have to be like, okay, don't just throw out everything in there just to have it in there. I have to go and, you know, be like, okay, what is strategic? Like, what is worth focusing on? What isn't? True. Um, yeah, I wanted to get as much in there as I could. And the story of NBA Jam, you know, goes back from uh, Mark Tomell, who loved Pong and old arcade games and was programming Apple II games, up until him working at Zynga nowadays, making mobile games. I That's mean, nice. I could use that as an avenue to talk about all that stuff. Right, no kidding. To see the evolution of just him, I guess it's safe to say he's sort of the main character of this book. If you were Absolutely. to put a character to Absolutely. right, Absolutely, he's the main character. Yeah, I'd say then. Yeah, Sal Devita is probably like the second, right? Of um, course, yeah. Was the artist on NBA Jam and uh, Night Wolf and Sector and Cyrax and Smoke and Mortal Kombat Three, That's and crazy. then Tim Kistra, the the voice, is probably the third. Of course, but Tremel is by far and away the number one person for it but he was such a great subject i was like i can't believe nobody's written about him like this before right. so i felt lucky he had all this great stuff that was right there for me i'm not kidding and another thing i i didn't know about this like there's so many things that you brought up that i had and i thought i was like a gamer but in like 1942 pinball games were illegal right yeah yeah like, over chicago how crazy is that and what did they do they like burned it down for scrap metal or something if they found it yeah, yeah. So there's it was Mayor Fiorello, Fiorello LaGuardia, okay. which LaGuardia Airport is named after. Right. Yeah, and he, um, yeah, he was on this whole thing. It was sort of, sort of similar to what happened with comic books at one point when comic books were banned and um, right. they were being burned and whatnot. It was, you know, it was basically like this corrupting the youth. So Mayor LaGuardia um, went. He had this whole campaign of going in and smashing these pinball uh, tables. Mm-hmm. And there's actually photographs out there. Like piles of these old pinball games and broken glass everywhere and being set on fire, um, but they would make a big thing of it because they thought it was gambling. It was encouraging kids to gamble. Oh, so okay. I was like, man, this is such a cool little detail too. And how can I tie this story into? How can I tie that into the story of NBA Jam in the book? Right. Um, so yeah, so there's little ways that I was able to weave some of that stuff in there. You know, of course, I wasn't just gonna be like, okay, let me just focus on Super Mario Brothers for a chapter and Sonic the Hedgehog here and this and that and Halo. I was right. like, I kind of have to pick and choose. But something like that really illustrated the fact that arcades weren't always, and coin-operated games weren't always something that's like, oh, family-friendly, family Mm -hmm. entertainment centers, take the kids there. No, at one point it was like, no, this is a bad thing, which is why NBA Jam was almost rejected by the NBA. Yeah, no kidding. Like, even for myself, growing up, I had old school parents, like, I have baby boomer parents, so and they came, immigrated from Portugal and all that, so they're very old school. And going to the arcade was the devil. You cannot go to the arcade. You cannot go to the billiards. You cannot go to a pool hall. None, none of that stuff you could ever visit. If you go there, you're a druggie. You go there to smoke. You go there to drink. All this stuff. Like, if my parents ever found out I played video games at an arcade, oh, I would have got fucking beatings as a child. But if I, was to play, if I was to play at home, it would be okay. You know what I mean? So I understand all that. St- but again, I guess you explained it a bit. But is it the stigma behind it? Like they said, like it was because of the gambling and that's what they thought that kids were gambling or they were spending their money, hard-earned money into these machines and getting nothing back in return. 
there was a lot of it. I think it was like kind of like it was all those different things. It was that. It was yeah, you know, kids yeah blowing their money on something that's just a waste of time. The idea, of course, the idea being that video games or pinball games or you know just in the same way that people think comic books or metal music is a waste of time. Um, and then also in the NBA's case, you know, they were right near Times Square, which had you know. There was like, yeah, there was um, peep shows and lots of crime over there. That's right, old and, school, you know, back in the day, yeah. Stops that, yeah. So you're gonna think like, okay, this is um, this is something that's like, this is something that's very negative, and you don't want to be associated with. There's a lot of stuff that went into that. I mean, I think I, I touched on it in the book a little bit too. Is like, you go back and watch Terminator Two, mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies, yeah, and of a, a game that, or a movie that made it such a great game by Midway, no less. Mm-hmm. You know, in the movie. John Connor goes and to show that this kid's a really bad kid, he's going over and playing Afterburner at the arcade. Right. So there was definitely that stigma, and I thought that was something that was really interesting too. Because nowadays you don't really think twice if you see an arcade game or a right. pinball game. But things haven't always been this way. I know. And now they have all these new what are they called arcade bars where they're just popping up everywhere where you pay the one entrance fee and you get to play whatever you want it there and just have drinks if you want to just relax it's a social gathering and those at least here in toronto where i'm from lineups like all these bars down that are popping up line and it's all like you said all the old school midway games all the old school atari games that's all you literally see there and then you have the modded out like nes's and genesis hooked up to like big screen tv so you, you have like the whole catalog to go through as well so it, times have changed i guess right i guess full circle absolutely absolutely yeah and all those kids that love playing nba jam in 1993, 94, have all grown up, right. and you know they're working. They want to blow off some steam after work. They want to hang out with their friends, and maybe have a reason to get drunk and go play some NBA Jam. So NBA Jam is one of those things I always see as staples of these places. Like over in Columbus, uh, over here, there's I think four barcades, maybe five barcades, okay. and I think I think most of them, actually almost all of them, might either have NBA Jam in terms of the actual machine right. or somewhere on a console over there, right. but. People just love those games. I mean, it just, you know, they're like fighting games. People just get really into them. And especially when you add alcohol into the mix, then people start to get really into it. So it's, I mean, it's a different level to it than when we were we were kids. But it's cool to see that there's still that, that love for that culture out there. Hey, I'll have to admit, I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for it. I think I've owned every single home console edition of NBA Jam, even to the most recent one on the PS3. I still have it on my hard drive yeah. sitting there. And that's the only reason why I have my PS3. I actually have that. I have uh, Blitz, another Midway game, or I guess the remake is from EA, but the right. Origins, and uh, Grand Theft Auto V. That's all that's on my PS3, and that's all I need it for, those three games, and I'm suffice if I ever want to go back and fuck around on the PS3. So, hey, it, it's, it stood the test of time. But the evolution of NBA Jam, like you went through it all too, like how it's supposed to be a two-on-two simulation at first, and then how they incorporated everything, literally step-by-step from the fire mode at the Burger King and then even the origins of Boom Shakalaka, all these little, again, I guess the theme of this whole thing is the small details, right? Absolutely, absolutely. That's what makes it so interesting is that, you know, like I, I think like, for example, like let's say Super Mario, I find Super Mario like it's such a cool game, but I would really like to know, I actually I probably could learn some of this stuff now if I, if I really do some deep Googling. But, you know, where did like this idea to give him a cap come from? Where did the idea to make him jump a certain way come from? Where did the idea for Bowser come from or Peach or whatever? Right. Or, uh, yeah. And um, 
person's toadstool. And the same idea was with NBA Jam was like, okay, I want to go through it step by step. How did this actually materialize? So that if you are coming to the book to say, I only want to know about NBA Jam, mm-hmm. then you've got one chapter that is just about the creation of NBA Jam. Mm-hmm. But if you want to know about more than NBA Jam, there's other stuff in the book too. Right. But that was one of the most fun things. I mean, I was really proud of that as I was able to get the the original development team to talk about it and to share their stories. Yep. And uh, the fact that there's only seven of them was actually worked to my advantage because that way I can talk about each of them. Everybody can get a little bit of love. I mean, now if you look at a game, there are going to be hundreds of people working on the game. No so kidding. you're going to probably only be able to touch on a few people here and there. Right. Um, with NBA Jam, you know, you've, I'm able to get everybody. Um, so it was, I really enjoyed that. And I love learning about stuff like that. Like, you know, Burger King. Yeah. Crick coming up with On Fire at Burger King. What a right. great detail. So, yeah. I, whenever I, I go to eat, like, I don't really get Burger King very often, but whenever I do, like, I get those um, like those chicken fingers, okay. I think about NBA Jam. So, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And even the Easter eggs that Midway used, and literally in all their games, like from Mortal Kombat to all the secret stuff you needed to do to get Reptile and Noob Sabot, which I never knew until I grew up that it was... Uh, what Boone's and Tobias. Yeah, yeah, spelled backwards. I was like, that was such a mind fuck for me when I figured. I'm like, how stupid was I as right. a kid for not knowing that? <laughs> but like I said, all these little Easter eggs, even the like, what what was the the tank game? You you brought this up in the book too. Was, yeah, yeah. Was this in Mortal Kombat or in Bay Jam? It was in Bay Jam, right? This is in Bay Jam. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send uh, you a video of it afterwards. Fascinating. Okay. One of those things that's mostly lost to time, but there's a couple guys out there that still have videos of it. So what happened is that um, at the time, the guys at Midway, they were thinking about developing a th- uh, some kind of 3D tank game right. um, for the next project. And there's this one guy in particular named Sean Liptak. He was a programmer. He did like the rim physics in the game. He did a lot of stuff that you won't really notice, but like really changes how NBA Jam feels. So this guy is like the secret weapon. And he was like, okay, I want to throw this demo into the game. So what they did was they made it so that you would have to press, I think, all buttons at, at the same time, okay. like every one of them at the same time, and you'd be able to activate the special game. Oh, wow. And it would be right before, you know, right after tonight's matchup, and just before the actual players would appear on the court. Okay. So you'd have to enter it over there. Right. And the game would pop up. You'd play it for a couple of, like, not even a minute. You'd play it for maybe 15, 30 seconds. But it was just another fun little Easter egg. Right. And what's funny is that, yeah, they weren't... Uh, they were just doing this as a little joke, just something else they could add to the game. And they're thinking maybe this will get some interest. Um, but turns out that the way they programmed it is that you could actually access it through the demo mode originally. Oh. So that meant that you could not have to pay for NBA Jam and Shut you could up. just go set on the machine. That's right, you that mentioned that, yeah. <laughs> That's and crazy. And the guys were freaked out about that. And they're like, oh my gosh, Like people are not going to be playing NBA Jam. They'll be playing this tank game for free right. if they find out what's going on. So they asked all the video game magazines, don't publish the code. Don't let anybody know this is a thing. Um, But, of course, NBA Jam was such a good game, people are not going to be playing some kind of little tank game demo over NBA Jam itself. So, in the end, it ended up being a worry uh, not really worth uh, caring about. But, yeah, there was that was another little facet, too. I mean, I wanted to get that in there, like the Drazen Petrovic, the the bug where you could... Yes, uh, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many cool things. I mean, NBA Jam is a ghost story. NBA Jam is a tank game. NBA Jam (laughs) is Fresh Prince. And NBA Jam is Bill Clinton and all this stuff. I mean, there's just so much over there. I was like, I could keep going and going. 
It's so true. Like you, you brought it up. The, the hidden characters to me that blew my mind when I first heard about this. Because obviously, I think I read it even like in a Game Pro or something back in the day when I first figured it out, or someone told me or showed me at the arcade or whatever. Or, or no, the home system. I'm sorry. And, yeah, yeah. And again, the details, man. Going even with uh, Randolph Vance and William Henderson and how they came up with the strategy guide and everything. And was that like the first official strategy guide to a video game? I'm not sure if it was the first official strategy guide. Or to be published, game. maybe? But no, it was. I think at that point it was still really early because it was okay. still it was so very online. But at that point, I don't think there was. Uh, I'm not sure if there was stuff like that for other Midway games. There might have been. Um, I know that Randolph Vance also did one for Terminator 2, the arcade game. But oh, I'm not okay. sure if they did that before NBA Jam or after NBA Jam. But those guys that worked on it, yeah, it was that was a great story too. You know, thinking about there's these two friends in Kentucky who see somebody playing as Mark Trammell on NBA Jam. They say, I've never heard of any NBA player named Mark Trammell. <laughs> and then some guy says, no, he's a secret character. And then, you know, they decide, okay, he must be a developer, and they find his name in the phone book, and they call him up. I mean, amazing stuff. What a great story, and something that had never been out any place before. So I'm so glad, like, I kept, you know, chasing every lead I could get. Like, I was like, okay, you know, I want to find out how, I want to go from the top to the bottom. Like, I want to not just talk to somebody who's way up there, like a CEO, or somebody who's, like, up there in business management. I want to talk to the guys who are doing the you know, the art, I want to talk to the secret characters, the cheerleaders, I want to talk to the fans, I want to talk to whomever I could. Right. Um, there's people in there I couldn't put in the book, like I talked to uh, one woman who has an NBA Jam tattoo. Oh, wow. And yeah, yeah. She was one where it was like a cool little anecdote, but I didn't okay. have like the room for it, and at that point the book was really long as is. Right. Um, but there was just so much to it, I could just keep going and going, and that was one of the th- ways I felt so blessed by the project is like I decided to chase this and see, okay, is there a good story with the secret characters or with the strategy guide? And then, yeah, it turns out there is. turns out these guys loved NBA Jam so much that they came up, you know, they started working this whole strategy guide. Um, one other guy named Carl Chavez like developed the original skeleton for it, mm. but these guys fleshed it out and they ended up selling it to a magazine and everything. And I'm like, man, so many amazing stories that – um, it just felt like it kept going and going, so I felt really lucky that I had such a so much great material to work with. But those guys' stories, maybe one of my favorite things in the book, like in terms of things that I'm proud of that would never existed before. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can find other stuff about how NBA Jam was made, right. bits and pieces, but there's nothing out there about the strategy guide, and I was really proud of that. No, that that is awesome. Like like I said, I don't, they even gave after suggestions to Mark Termel about everything because they're such fans and such into the game to make yeah. the game better for future renditions of it and stuff like that. And it, again, it just boggled my mind. And then you even brought it up, stuff that didn't fit in the book. How much material did you have left over that you wish you could cram in the book? Man, tons of stuff. So I had, so not stuff in terms of like, you know, okay, I've got a bunch of different stories I want to put in there, but more like quotes. So oh, okay. I did 68 reviews, which was way overboard. <laughs> I, I, if I topped out about 50, that'd been fine. Right. But I did, I think I did 10 interviews with Mark Tramiel alone. Oh, so wow. I wanted to be like, let's let's go through everything. Let's be as detailed as possible. Right, right. Because again, that adds to the whole world of the book. And if, you know, I get basically one shot to put it out there. Mm. Um, you know, I think about video games sometimes. You can patch a video game, but you can't patch a book. You know what I mean? Like, as in, oh. you get it, you know, you get one shot, that's it. That's true. So I wanted to get everything I could, and I didn't want somebody to be like, oh, you left out this, you left out that. Right. I'm trying to do my best to get everything in there. 
So in terms of stuff that I left out, it was more like long quotes. I had some really funny quotes about how run down the Midway building was oh. that I didn't get to put in there. This okay. guy gave me this great, great quote I'm going to have to do something with someday where he talked about, um, you know, like there was uh, like all kinds of like, God, what was it? It was some kind of like, it was some kind of like waste dripping from the ceiling or some kind of mold. Okay. I mean, um, and I was told like I heard all these funny stories about like the rat problem over there. Right. Like uh, there were so many rats around this area in Chicago that people oh. would run over them all the time. Oh my god! By accident, they'd be running across the street. Right. And one of the pranks that one of the midway guys did to another one was that he would take it, find a dead rat, right. and put it in another guy's briefcase. Oh my god! And the other guy would not find out for a few days. Shut like, up! Man, what's that smell? Oh. And there was a dead rat in there. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> that has nothing to do with NBA Jam, but it's like, what a crazy story. So, oh, that's awesome! <laughs> well, I'm glad you told yeah. it here. Then <laughs> that, it was no, it was great. Yeah, and the fact that the rat problem was so bad, they had oh, to like get rid of the first two rows of the vending machines Oof. because the uh, the rats would climb up and get the snacks on the first level and second level. Shut so they had to do it like the third, fourth, and whatever level. So I had oh lots of God. great stories like that and cool little details. And um, yeah, I mean, I could have kept going, but then at some point I was like, okay, attention spans a thing. Page counts a thing, right. you know. Word counts a thing. There's so much that went into it, but this is the longest book by far in the series. So my publisher was really good in that way. Like they let me get the vision that I wanted to get. And at times I was really nervous, thinking like, "Man, oh, I did all this work and it won't make it in there." But I'm happy to say almost everything that I wanted in there is there. There's barely anything missing. I mean, I've got a few things maybe I can throw in sure. uh, for another version, but um, everything's in there. That's awesome. That is fucking awesome. Okay, what about again? You brought it up talking with all the 68 interviews you talk to yeah. nba stars to hip-hop artists to people in the video game industry everything in and did you end up talking to bill clinton since he was a special character i was actually thinking about that i was actually thinking so this is right around the time when hillary's doing her presidential run okay in 2016 i was like okay maybe i can reach out like she's in the news all the time she's doing all these interviews maybe i can like slip in i can be like okay NBA Jam interview. Hillary, you were in NBA Jam. Bill was in NBA Jam too. You guys want to talk? Right. I was like, oh, it's probably like a waste of time. Um, so I did end up pursuing him, but I pursued all those other people. Um, even the ones I didn't get for the book, I pursued. Like, you know, Sean Kemp, I tried to get. Wasn't able to get him, but I tried oh, him. Man. Gary Payne, tried to get. Couldn't get him. Right. But then on the other hand, I ended up with Glenn Rice. Ended up yep. with Shaq. Shaq was such a huge one that I can take it to my mom. Like, mom, right. I interviewed Shaq. You know, my mom doesn't care about some of these other people. Like, she doesn't care about the Mortal Kombat creator <laughs> of course. or about John Romero who made Doom or and Quake, but she knows about Shaq and she cares about Shaq. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I reached out to as many people as I could and this is one of the other, other amazing things about NBA Jam is that everybody likes it so much. Right. I mean, everybody, you know, it's not like you look back at NBA Jam and, oh, I have this negative memory or that sad thing to say about it. Even Mortal Kombat, a game I love, people can be like, oh, it's too violent or yeah. this wrong or that wrong. That's With true. NBA Jam, it's all positive. So yep. everybody wants to talk about it, and everybody wants to share their story. DJ Jesse Jeff was one of the first ones I got. Really? This was back in... Yeah, yeah. This was probably maybe late 2015. Okay. I remember I... Um, I, I uh, so I was at my day job. Okay. And I um, want to still want to do this interview, but his, but his agent says, okay, he's available at like 9.30 in the morning. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll make it work somehow. Um it was either 9.30 or 10.30. Whatever the case was, I left work, Go went and sat in my car in the parking lot, and then I called up G.J. Jazzy Jeff <laughs> and talked about NBA Jam for a half hour, and then I went back up and went right back to work. That's crazy. And 
it was such a trip. I mean, these amazing experiences that happened because of it. But people love NBA Jam and they love talking about it. So I was very fortunate that way that I had all these people to talk to. And okay, I, I need to touch on the picture of the haunting of this thing again. For people who yeah. don't know, what was it? Because there's so many things that I, again, had no idea. Like the Triple X version with Kitro swearing on it, like uh, Mortal Kombat characters in it. I never knew there was that at yeah. one point. Michael Jordan appearing in a, a couple of versions, I believe, that only two people own or three. Like, yeah. How, again, how did you dig up all these so called Easter eggs? Yeah, yeah. A lot of it was, I did lots and lots of research. I was like pretty much treating this like a PhD. Oh. I was like, uh, I called myself, I was just me messing around with myself, but I was like, I'm a jamologist. Like, I'm over here, right. I'm doing researching everything I can. I went through old magazines, I went through old forums, I did all kinds of really deep dive Google searches, I talked to so many people, right. I tried to talk about everything I could, because I was like, I know there's so much material over there. So yeah, so it was lots of intense, intense Googling, and writing, and rewriting, and interviewing, and checking, and fact checking, and this and that. But there's so much stuff over there that I was like, man, this is all good stuff. Like, even these things, like, let's say the tank game, it's only a couple paragraphs in the book, but easily could be its own little story itself somewhere. Right. Of the whole tank game in NBA Jam and talking about that in more detail. Um, yeah, a lot of that was doing lots of research. And then, luckily, like I said, yeah, everybody's alive and everybody mm-hmm. speaks English. So I can talk to everybody about all the key details and get the real, the real scoop. Plus, on the Midway side, when I talk about how the company went out of business, right. you know, it's, in some ways it's a good thing for the book that Midway went out of business because if there's like, let's say it's electronic arts, you're not going to go bash electronic arts even if, unless you really want to burn that bridge right. because you're like, you might want another job with them uh, someday. Yeah, you never know. You know, yeah. But with Midway, they're long gone. So say whatever you want, they're not there. So you can do anything you want when it comes to talking about Midway, which I felt was another amazing thing about the book is that I get to talk about. This amazing times, and then I got to talk about how it all went downhill, which was, an, was something that was like, uh, it really added some dramatic tension to it, as opposed to like all the happy, fun stuff. Talk right. about some sad stuff, too. So well, I had so much material to work with, I was very lucky. Well, that's what I wanted to ask, too. Like, I, I, and you sort of answered my next question is no one was really holding back, and no one was angry that you told these stories. Everyone was actually willing to share, because, like you said, it's no longer around, it's done, it's over with, and whatever has been moving forward. Do you know, is the the, new, the latest version, was it related to any of the original creators of the game or developers or any of that? Yeah, are you talking about the 2010 version? I think, yeah, whatever most recent yeah, version yeah. came out, yeah, on the PS3, yeah. 2010, 2011, yeah, yeah. So Mark Jamel participated in that oh, one. Oh, he did, okay. From somewhat of a consultant perspective. And then Tim Kitzrow, the voice of NBA Jam, he did the he did that. But otherwise, they were the only two guys that participated from the, from back in the day. Okay. And... Even even with that, I thought it was a really interesting story. Is like, how do you go about trying to make another NBA Jam after NBA Jam has been so huge? So that was another extra element that I was able to find and that I wanted to do something with when it came to the story. So um, yeah, I mean, NBA Jam 2010. Like, I wouldn't say it's like a perfect game, and it's not ever going to be the same as the original NBA Jam. Of course, but they really were trying a lot. Like they tried the secret characters. And, on fire and big head mode and this and that. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I bet there's a good story over there too. Um, so yeah, I was lucky enough to, to dig around and, f- and find that as well. So um, there's just so much material that I was able to to find and so many people I was able to talk to. And yeah, right. I mean, the thing is that people were willing to share. I mean, and with some of the Midway developers, I developed relationships over the years. I mean, 
What's funny is I've never met Mark Trammell. Okay. Still not ever met him. Oh, it's all through the phone I've talked to him. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I've got his whole life story over here and I've never met the man. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, I was all over the, all over the phone, right. all through uh, doing research in terms of emailing, in terms of, you know, reading about him um, and trying to get his perspective on a lot of things. Sure. So I really wanted to leave no stone unturned. Just keep going and going and going. Um but yeah, I mean, the, the 2010 version was another great story that I really didn't know was going to be a thing until I started doing some more digging. No, that's awesome. And even again, with the previous games that ever all these people worked on, you talked about the NHL Open Ice Series, Blitz. I didn't even touch on, I totally forgot about this. And I'm a huge wrestling fan and so are you. The WWF WrestleMania game. How cool was that? Like, did you get to talk? I don't remember now. Did you get to talk to any wrestlers about that as well or anything? Man, I did not. I would love to talk to some wrestlers about that someday. One in particular is Bret Hart, because right. Bret Hart was in a bunch of promotional material for this game. So he would like probably be able to talk about it a little bit. Um, yeah, they like so these Midway guys, just to give you some context, yeah, they, um, they finish NBA Jam, and they're on top of the world. The game did so well, they think whatever game they're going to do next is going to be a hit. Mm-hmm. They end up getting the WWF license. <coughs> Excuse me. They thought that um, they weren't going to act- get actual wrestlers. They thought they were going to get have to get doubles. Oh. Um, they were going to basically, yeah, they were going to have to basically uh, do as they did with NBA Jam, where they had right. somebody else standing in as the body, gotcha. and then, um, then you know, draw the heads on or put the outfits together. Right. Well, Vince McMahon says, "Yeah, I'll send them on over to you." That's and then Midway goes, "Really? <laughs> yeah." So all these guys show up to Chicago. And then they're all hanging out together, filming together, drinking together. I mean, Yokozuna is getting drunk with Sal DeVita, the artist. Wow. They're getting into drinking competitions. They're getting drunk at the hotel bar. Right. I mean, they're messing around with each other. Bam Bam Bigelow was in a, like a promo thing with Mark Trammell and Sal DeVita. Um, these guys had a great time. And That's they awesome. really enjoyed working on the game. I mean, these guys really poured their, their lives into it. Right. Um, WWF WrestleMania ended up being kind of a failure financially, which I found surprising. I was did not expect that at all. Right. I thought the game had done great, but it came out at the same time as Mortal Kombat 3. And the arcade scene, it just wasn't, did not hit the same way. Right. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of like a, you know, they're the super high with NBA Jam. And then WWF WrestleMania looks great, plays fun, but then it just doesn't perform the same way financially. So, yeah, again, with the highs and lows and all the arcs over there, WWF WrestleMania was a, really fun game and i'd love to do something more extensive about it someday like maybe even do like a little story about WF wrestlemania like a whole long article about it try to get some of those developers to share more fun stories because i know there's some more good stuff out there about it oh exactly i could only imagine like you just said like just them having a good time and partying and being so relaxed during the shoots and stuff like yeah. just right there alone you probably have a bunch of stories that you could write a book with <laughs> absolutely i mean thinking like you know, you've got uh, this place in Midway where you've got the guys from NBA Jam over there. Right. Then you've got Stephen Tyler from Aerosmith showing up. Then you've got The Undertaker showing up. Oh my God. I mean, it just blows my mind, like, all these things that were happening over there um, in that place in Chicago. So it was a really magical time with a lot of, like, really brilliant, creative people. And, you know, the timing was just so perfect. Mortal Kombat was so huge. Yep. Um, NBA Jam was so huge. The arcades were huge. It had so much working in its favor. My God. Okay, I'm going to throw some stats, and if we talk about it, we talk about it. If not, we could just go right to the next one. But again, you mentioned it, 68 people. That's crazy that you interviewed. The first NBA Jam Cabinet was in Chicago in 1992. Yep. 
that's that's nuts as well. I can't even now that I feel really old. Not <laughs> this is oh, a good yeah. one. Oh yeah, I, I definitely feel way old talking about all this stuff. Is when I so I work with these young coworkers. Uh, by young, I mean I'm 33, but they're like in the early 20s. Right. And I tell them about NBA Jam, and they're like, oh, "Okay, yeah, yeah." Like, "Oh God, I feel so old." So they play NBA Jam, they enjoy it, and they see the absolutely see the appeal. But there's definitely like a, even a little bit of a generation gap over there. Yeah, no um, kidding. But, oh, tell I'm me sorry. About it. <laughs> no, no worries. Or not having the players with different ratings when it was first released. I didn't realize that. I thought there was always like because I always remember having what is it, speed, shoot, pass, or whatever it was. Like yeah, you'd have yeah. the stats, right? This, this over here. Oh, there you go. Speed, yeah, yeah. Speed, three points, dunks, and defense. That's it. Yes. And I think what they did was they they had them, um, but they didn't actually program the stats. So Carl Malone played the exact same as John Stockton, and you know <laughs> Scottie Pippen played the exact same as Horace Grant. Right. You think in your head that they're different. You know, it's like with M and M's. Um, I think I use that analogy in the book too. Is that you know you see a different color of M and M. Maybe the green one will taste different from the yellow one, right. or from the red one, but they're all the same chocolate underneath. In the same way with NBA Jam, the players were all the same underneath, um, even though they had those stats on there. So in a very early version, I'm pretty sure they had these on there, right. but they didn't actually really like program them in there um, and do anything with that in terms of the stats. That blew my mind too. Thinking of NBA Jam without stats makes it seem like a very different game. I think so. It makes it seem like generic, like the old school games like on the NES exactly. and stuff like that that had no licenses. It was always the same guy. They were just different colors or something, and that's it, right? Exactly, like Blades of Steel. I love Blades of Steel, but that right? game, yeah. You, I mean, you when you pick like Chicago versus Minneapolis, you're pretty much picking because you like the color, you like the city. There's right. no difference. Exactly. Um, this is another way in which NBA Jam kind of innovated is that you were able to play as real players and have some of their stats in there too, and you'd be able to recognize their faces within the gameplay itself. Whereas other games would just put the faces on the box, or maybe on a loading screen, right. or on the title screen, or you'll see it, you know, on the menu where you select the team or the players. But these guys actually look like themselves in the game; they play like themselves in the game. No, that's awesome. Yeah, that's true. Okay, and at its peak, NBA Jam was making what was it one billion dollars a quarter? Oh yeah, it was. Well, yeah, one billion dollars overall. Actually, you know what? One billion dollars is uh, kind of a conservative estimate. Um, Tim Kitzrow, the uh, the voice, uh, the announcer of NBA Jam, right. he says two billion. And from what I understand was probably more like one point three, one point four, one point five billion. But that is insane. I mean, think about that. Just in quarters slash tokens, and then you know, Jurassic Park made three hundred forty three million in nine ninety three, and Jurassic right. Park was everywhere. I yep. mean, the Toronto Raptors exist because of, because of yep. dinosaurs. That's true. Park. That is true. And then NBA Jam made three times that money in quarters slash tokens, which right. is just mind-blowing. But it was that huge. I mean, it might sound far-fetched, but then you realize people really, really love that game. And especially back then, that's what people... A billion dollars is a lot now. Now, back then, a yeah. billion dollars was like, oh my God, you could like own a right. country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean... NBA Jam was everywhere. People were waiting in lines for it. I mean, Glenn Rice was a professional NBA player for right. the Miami Heat, and he was there waiting in line with everybody in an arcade in Miami just so he could play NBA Jam. Wow. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. You go do this for a living. You are famous. You know, you've got a big, prominent profession, and you're still waiting in line with everybody else to play NBA Jam. So it just had that kind of effect on people. Jesus Christ. And speaking of making money as well, coin ops in general, and this is, I didn't even realize this, that they made this much money back in the day. Was it two to three billion dollars in 82? 
Yeah. Oh, in the '82, it was huge, huge amounts of money. Oh yeah. Like in the in its peak when Pac-Man was super hot, and then after things like Space Invaders and whatnot. Yeah, arcades were massive, massive, massive business. Jesus. So it's changed a lot nowadays, but they were huge. But then you saw the big drop. I think you also mentioned this in the book. In '85, it went down to 100 million. Something like that. Right? Yeah, yeah. The whole industry basically crashed. Yeah, um, because it was because what happened was, especially with the home market, is there was you know Atari had become so popular. There right. were so many games out there that they made all these consoles. Like, were way too many consoles. Like, imagine like you know you see okay, what do you what do you have right now? You've got Switch. You've got an Xbox One. You've got a PS4. Pretty much, yeah. That's three. Yeah. Then you can you can throw in PC. You can throw in handhelds. Okay, maybe sure. like five, six, seven, whatever. Imagine like 20 consoles at once. You're like, wow, oh. this is overwhelming, and it's almost off-putting. And that's what happened. The whole industry suffered, and the arcade suffered as a result, too. There was just too much of everything, and the whole industry fell apart. And then it climbed back up, and then, of course, Super Mario was huge for getting it back on, on track. Of course. Um, and Nintendo's success... But, you know, there's a point when Williams, um, the parent company of what will become Midway, right. you know, they weren't in uh, in good shape either. So lots of highs and lows over there. But, yeah, when it was big business, arcades were big, big, big business. Oh, wow. If I only knew, again, as a kid, right? Um, yeah. Also, I, I mentioned it. I'm a huge Mortal Kombat fan. It took six months to make, and they actually wanted to use Jean-Claude Van Damme as the main character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was – so. Just for some context, just before that, they made Terminator 2, the arcade game, Midway did. Okay. Um, they got the license, and that was huge for them because it sold 10,000 uh, arcade cabinets. So for context, a few years earlier, they'd sold maybe 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. This one sold 10,000. Wow. So then after, with the Terminator name on, Ter- Terminator 2 name on there, the Midway management were like, okay, now everything has to have a license. Right. So they're like, okay, if you guys want to make a fighting game, get... Jean-Claude Van Damme. So they tried to get Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, for a Universal Soldier game. And then that didn't work out. So they're like, okay, how about for this idea for this Mortal Kombat game, we can use him to base this around. And his price point was way out of their budget. So they just ended up going with their own stuff, which was for the best. Mm. I mean, that's what led to them being more creative and adding those Sub-Zero and Scorpion and things like that in there. Um, The game was about them versus the game being about Jean-Claude Van Damme. But yeah, at that time, they wanted to make everything license-oriented. So Jean-Claude Van Damme was originally going to be in a midway game, or at least they hoped he would be. <laughs> and that's why NBA Jam was so big, too. They're like, okay, we need a license. Right. You, know, you can't just have a basketball game. You need the NBA license. So you know, just a few years before that, they released an unlicensed football game called uh, Super High Impact. Uh, have you ever played Super High Impact? I've heard of it, but I don't think I've ever played it. See, that's the thing is most people haven't played it. I've never played it, and I've heard of it, but it's one of those things like it just never really stood out. Right. And I think a big part because of that lack of license, um, you know, people are not going to be as, as interested in it without yeah. that license. But when you take what NBA Jam is as a game and all this other stuff in terms of the creativity and the design, and you throw in the license, it mm-hmm. just goes to another level. So, yeah, so Mortal Kombat almost was a licensed game with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, Thankfully, if you ask me, thankfully it wasn't because I think it would have totally changed the series. Right. Uh, but of course, they never knew at the time what was next. Well, yeah. Again, not to throw shade because you you talked to him and you said he was a nice guy. But look what happened with Shaq Fu. Imagine if Shaq wasn't in that game. Maybe that would have been a solid fighting game or something better instead of being oriented around Shaq's, so to speak. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man. So while we're on the Shaq Fu subject, sure. I talked to him. I had to. Oh, okay. So I, it's not in the book. It's not in the book because it has no pertinence to NBA Jam. Right, right, I was right. like, man, I can talk to Shaq. So what I did was I, um, so I got through all the main NBA Jam stuff when I talked to him, and I was like, I spent like five months trying to get it. Okay. So I got all the main stuff I needed to get in first. I was like, okay, I got a little bit more time. Sure. Um, so I was like, Shaq Fu, like let's like I I said, um, I was like, yeah, do you know that there's a site out there where the whole goal is to collect every Shaq Fu cartridge and destroy it, which there is. Yeah. It's I think it's ShaqFu.com. Oh my God. Um, ShaqFu, it's out there. And then he did not know this was a thing that existed, but oh. he was like, don't worry, it did fine. It made a lot of money. The technology wasn't where it needed to be, but, you know, that game did fine. So I got to talk about ShaqFu, uh, to talk to Shaq about ShaqFu too, which was another one of those byproducts of that, uh, of working on the book that was so great. I mean, right. I'm not going to talk to Shaq otherwise about Shaq Fu, but if I get him to talk about video games, I can talk to him about Shaq Fu. So, yeah. I mean, the licensed uh, idea with those fighting games, there's good and there's bad. I mean, the idea that, you know, okay, you can have a whole Marvel versus Capcom game, we can have these fictional characters doing it, that's cool. But when you have, like, a celebrity doing it, like, when there's, like, one celebrity versus a bunch of nobodies you'll never ever see again, then it's kind of downhill and... Man, I really wanted to love Shaq Fu. I bought Shaq Fu. I was like, here we go. I love Shaq. I love the magic. And it was so... I mean, I'd probably tell him this if I ever talked to Shaq again. I was like, it wasn't very good. It was... It, no. It's so awkward. And the funny thing is, uh, I, I didn't end up buying it because my parents were too cheap. So I had to rent all the games and hopefully clear it within two days. But yeah. I wanted. I remember wanting to love it so much to the point where I forced myself to play it to almost yes. wanting to like. No, I'm gonna force myself to like it because again, like you said, who who didn't like Shaq back in the '90s, right? Absolutely, especially young Shaq. You know when he right? was like, yeah, blue chip Shaq. Yep. I mean, early Orlando Magic Shaq. I mean, yeah. Oh, I definitely played Shaq Fu because of him, and he was only the only reason. I mean, if you just <laughs> take him out, there's pretty much no reason to play the game. But I was like, yeah, I got to play it. It's got Shaq on it. I love Shaq. So, hey, he knew that, and he probably made a lot of money off of it because of people like us. Yeah, of course he did. (laughs) All right, before I get into the dumbass of the week where we end the show, you're a big wrestling fan, like I mentioned. Yeah. Let's talk some wrestling. I go through ebbs and flows, but especially in the 90s. Actually, in Pakistan, I was a huge wrestling fan. Um, But that said, though, I'm still, still in the loop. So, okay, as of this recording, the huge big news, obviously everyone's talking about AEW. Did you end up watching, uh, what was it, Full Gear, Full Metal? What was the pay-per-view called? Full Gear, yeah. Full Gear, yeah. there it is. I, I only got to watch a little bit of it. Um, <laughs> I uh, ended up, it was one of those things where it's like, I have big plans to watch it, but right. then I think, I, what happened, like I fall, fell asleep or something, and <laughs> I really wanted to watch that Moxley-Omega uh, match, but I still haven't got a chance to see it. I ended okay. up missing it. Um, but yeah, I remember watching, I... What was the the first one they did? Double or Nothing. Oh, right. That one I ended up buying. I love Double or Nothing. I really enjoyed it. I love the fact that AEW, if nothing else, is different. At least it's just, I mean, WWE is always going to be number one no matter what. Of They're course. like the McDonald's of wrestling. Yeah. But it's so nice to have something else out there. Um, so, yeah, so I've been watching a little bit of the, the TV show and whatnot. Um, didn't get to watch too much of Full Gear. Um, I watched like a, a bits and pieces, but I want to catch up with that show for sure. Did you get to see it? Yeah, I watched it from top to bottom. I, I think I give it like, I don't know, four out of five, I guess, if you were to rank it if, uh, as a whole. Yeah. The last match was crazy. It Again, speaking of childhood, it literally reminded me of ECW back in the day 
where yeah. like see i come from the attitude era so i like a little bit of the headshots a little bit of the blood a little bit of the craziness i'm not really offended by that and plus they're professionals no one's holding a gun to their head if they choose to do this they're doing something they love and i'm sure if everyone says the same thing if they had to do it over again they would anyways so who are us as the fans to judge how they perform for us you know what i mean but I loved it. Like even the matches beforehand, like you had everything from high flying to tech, and that's what I like about AEW. And I guess that's where they get sort of the comparison, and even the style, the commentary to old school WCW, where they had a little bit of everything when it was at its prime, obviously with Nitro and all that, right? right. But I just hope they don't fall into that trap as well, where it gets stagnant and the same. Because I sort of see that going down already, where. They have the same storylines. It's sort of progressing. You have Cody cu- cutting some good promos, and that match was awesome too with Jericho. But I don't see really the long term. Like you know what I mean. I'm more of a long term type of guy, and I don't see what I don't know what they're going to be doing in a year from now. Hopefully, they're going to be doing still great. But I don't see where they're going to get there storyline wise because I'm a huge storyline guy. Again, being from the '90s, there was no technical wrestling back then. It was all brawls. So you were really watching it for the story, right? So, and to me, AEW still doesn't have that. I don't know if that makes sense to you. No, it definitely does. Yeah, I hope that they really beef that up. I mean, what really hooked me on wrestling? So I started watching in '95. Um, so right as I was playing these these you know NBA Jam these midway games, I was getting into wrestling. And then I, I thought personally as a wrestling fan, I think my favorite year is 1997 right. because 1997 has you know, it felt started to feel more real. I mean, you've got Stone Cold before he went like full, I guess whatever baby face he was. Right. Um, and I love that Sean and Brett rivalry. It felt so real, and yeah. I was hooked. And they had the whole Canada thing. I love that Canada America angle. Yep. That was that was my maybe my single favorite storyline because it was so like. I mean, it doesn't like sound like it makes a lot of sense. Like if I pitch that to you right nowadays on WWE, like nobody's going to go along with it. Right. Like it'll sound forced, but. It was so good. No, I'm definitely one of those guys who loves a good story, loves a good promo. Um, and I loved ECW too. Man, I loved ECW. Yep. Um, you know, one thing that I feel like wrestling is lacking, um, of course, Paul Heyman's with WWE right now. Right. But I feel like wrestling is lacking somebody like a Paul Heyman in terms of like, okay, there's one guy who has a vision. Hmm. One guy wants to be like, okay, this is what I want it to be like. And this is what I want to do. Like, I mean, Paul Heyman was like a people as wrestlers worshipped him to some degree right. or always believed in him because he would be like, Oh, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll hide all your negatives, we'll you know, we'll do this kind of match. We'll, I mean, just doing crazy stuff left and right, taking all these risks and I thought he was so special. I would love for like a Paul Heyman type to come back and I think somebody like that could think of like more interesting like long term booking or more storylines, things like that. I feel like that's what's kinda of lacking in wrestling nowadays is somebody's got Me like too. a vision. And, and exactly, that's what I was just going to say. Like, again, speaking of long term, there's no, everything is what they call like hot shotted. Like, they do everything like for instant gratification from one week to the next. And it's another story. Like, where's this big build? Like, I remember where there used to be literally builds from one WrestleMania to the next, where you have the storyline. And then, like, even for example, Survivor Series coming up, you would have like some kind of feud end at Survivor Series where one team is all a bunch of friends going against another bunch of friends. And then that will probably squash or new rivalry start. Now it just seems like, oh, let's just put these five guys against these five guys nothing's going on between them but hey let's just put them together because they're good wrestlers as i put up quotations but every now no matter what you tune into you have nwa you have impact all these federations now or or organizations all have good wrestling so you can't really just sell me on good wrestling like you even have triple a if you want to go that far japan 
like I don't want I want the whole package of like again storytelling wrestling and uh episodic television I guess that's what I'm looking for you know what I mean like week to week where it, it enthralls me leaves me hanging and what am I going to watch next week absolutely absolutely I mean I also love WCW especially in the uh that whole Sting NWO storyline. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end they botched it. Like that whole Starcade '97. Oh, yeah. what a what a missed opportunity! <laughs> but that whole year, year and a half leading up to that was amazing. Thinking that Sting is staying away from the NWO, and the NWO is so cool, and there's always stuff going on with them. And right. I really loved that. I really loved the fact that like you never saw Sting versus Hogan until that one moment at Starcade. Um, and I, I really love the fact that, like, it, you just had to wait, wait, wait. I love the fact that, um, like, you, you really, I mean, there's just so much excitement with that. And honestly, I'm a much more bigger uh, MMA fan than I used to be, uh, than a wrestling fan nowadays. Nice. Because, to some degree, MMA is what replaced WWE in the way, like, the storylines, of course, feel real. In this case, these guys are really hitting each other. Right. Um, well, and also with that, You've got like more kind of like long term booking. It's like these guys taunt each other forever. You know, the you're not gonna up. see like Jones versus Cormier like every other week. Yep. You'll see them twice, and that'll be it. Exactly. Maybe you'll see them a third time someday if you're lucky. But like you know, that's the whole. That's something that's real special. And of course, you know, you're not really gonna get that. You're gonna get to see the same matches over and over again. They'll be in tag teams and this and that. And I kind of understand why they have to do it from like a day to day perspective. Right. But as a fan. It feels so much more special when you're like, okay, this is the one time you get to see it. This is like the second time, you know, maybe three, four or five times at most. It's not like every week, week in, week out, you know, uh, Dolph Ziggler versus Alberto Del Rio, which happened like probably like 500 times. Yeah, no kidding. It's so true. And going back to the one, I guess, having the, the personal to one vision, I guess that's why NXT works so well because you have Triple H, that's that, I guess, Paul Heyman where everyone reveres and everyone follows and he knows what he's doing and like that's good episodic tv well at least before now with all the main roster guys coming down i think that's not a good thing in my opinion i think it was special because it was this that core of guys but anyways that's for another rant but having those guys do what they do behind triple h and having story and always having a payoff at the end of it except for maybe the hideo Atami one we never got to the bottom of who clipped them in the parking lot but like like you know what i mean there's always like a nice finish to everything in nxt and that's what i appreciate they always finish it off nicely absolutely absolutely and even though I'm a pretty casual wrestling fan nowadays in the way that I don't really... I like, I'll like i always tune in for the big pay-per-views. Like, I'll always be there for Royal Rumble. I'll always be there for WrestleMania. Right. Sometimes Survivor Series. Sometimes SummerSlam. But always Royal Rumble and WrestleMania. And then with NXT, though, um, I, I, those especially early NXT pay-per-view events, or like the, the specials, I mean, just they were so good. Like, you know, when Bailey wins for the first time, it was amazing. Right. You know, uh, Sami Zayn... Um, versus uh, Shinsuke Nakamura was felt like such a huge deal. They had so many great moments like that. And I, I still feel NXT is very special. I hope they don't dilute it too much. I know what you mean. I haven't been, I actually have been out of the loop. I heard about the storyline, but I haven't watched any of the, um, any, any of the segments about this. Right. Um, but so, yeah, so what is it, what's going on right now? So it's they're sort of doing, cause now survivor series is all three brands against each other. So you have NXT versus raw versus SmackDown, but they're sort of doing an invasion angle where NXT is crashing raw and SmackDown and taking out superstars. And that, again, that whole Nexus deal, that whole, what they tried with WCW yeah. that crashed, but it's sort of working, but not really because again, you just ruined the whole, every wrestler you'll only see on that brand. Like, you know what I mean? Right. So why is NXT so much? And it seems like now, 
it's sort of like finally Vince McMahon's realized NXT is cool, so now he's going to water it down and ruin it like he's done everything else. Like, you know what I mean? And it's like, just let it be. Like, leave it alone. It's doing fine. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what happened with that WWE version of ECW. It was so cool when it started. I mean, mm-hmm. you had One Night Stand. Um, right. And then 2005, then the one in 2006. I'm like, man, this is so cool. Love those. I really love those pay-per-views. Yep. I think One Night Stand 2005 is maybe my single favorite pay-per-view of all time. Right. Anything. I was just so well. I was the pacing was great. The, cr- the crowd was great. It was so good. Yep. But then, yeah, they just turned it more into WWE, and it's like, no, like you can keep WWE and Raw and SmackDown, but like leave ECW as something different, right. so that when I go there, it feels different. And the idea of it being diluted is really disappointing. But I mean, that's why these alternatives like AEW exist, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I, again, it's we're picking <laughs> straws here because. There's so much opportunity out there. There's so many, much TV to watch that if you don't like it, then turn it off and watch something else and move on, right? But one last thing with wrestling then. The big news this week is CM Punk sort of returning to WWE. <laughs> Not really? Yeah, that was wild. I was um, I, I, I didn't watch the show last night, but I got on Twitter. It was like right before I got to bed or I went to bed. And it was like, oh, CM Punk is back. And I was like, what? Huh? I was like, wait a minute. It's, t- it's Tuesday night. Like, is there something that's, like, going on? Right. That's like, what I thought. Like, is there, like, in, like, was there, like, a big show going on? Like, in terms of, like, I'm, I was expecting, like, he'd be back on, like, Raw or pay-per-view or something. Right. And I was just really, like, it took me a second. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And I was like, huh. So he's kind of back but not back. Maybe he's back. I think he's going to eventually. He will. I mean, I honestly thought I thought he was going to be the one that would never come back. I was like, this is it. I mean, they fired him on his wedding day. Like, that has to be it. Like, imagine if I fire you on your wedding day. Right. You'll never want to work with me again, you know? So the fact that that he's back working with them in some capacity means that he's going to be wrestling sooner than later. So. And I mean, you know what I think they're going to do? If I had to guess, mm. they're going to give him the WrestleMania main event slot. I'm just going to go say it right now. Well, it has I say to be. They've, they've got to do it because, like, that's what he always wanted that he never got. So if they probably gave him a lot of money and they're like, look, we'll give you the top slot of WrestleMania. Right. And I feel like he would say yes to that, even with all the, the stuff that he's gone through. But, man, it felt so weird. It was, like, about as weird as seeing Bret Hart back on WWE television in 2010. Like, what is he doing back here? This is weird. <laughs> yeah, so for those of you who don't know, CM Punk has appeared on FS1 TV show, and I, I think he's contracted to FS1, not necessarily to WWE. So I guess that's where the loophole is. But like you said, I think it's all wink, wink, hush, hush. Where like like how they did it even with Sting on the WWE game, Kurt Angle coming back, all this stuff. Yeah. You always Ultimate Warrior is another one that comes to mind. You see the little footprints starting, and then it expands, and then they keep walking, and then next thing you know, they're having that WrestleMania moment, right? So I honestly think exactly. that's he's going to have one more match for sure, like guarantee. Come on, man! Like if he says he loves the sport or entertainment so much, he then he has to have at least one more. I don't think he likes the way he went off, even if he did MMA and whatnot. Maybe if he was winning in MMA, it would be a different story. But like you know what I mean? It is what it is, and oh, I, I honestly want to see him back. I, I, I loved his character. As a person, I might not like him too much because I've heard a lot of those bad stories, but again, I'm not there to witness what happens. It's his word against other people's, but you know what I mean? His character was awesome. You can't deny that he's one of the best of all times, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. I got to tell you, man, I was in Cleveland the night that uh, he had his first UFC fight. Oh, wow. I, uh, yeah, I've never uh, – this is actually one of the things that started to help get me into MMA. So at that point, I was into MMA, but not, like, really deep into it, like, in terms of, like, knowing, like, the more obscure fighters. Right. But when I saw that Punk was going to be fighting for the first time in Cleveland, I was like, man, 
I gotta go. So I paid so much money for these tickets. I mean, they're so expensive. <laughs> and I had a, I could not find a friend to go with who would pay it. Okay. So I, don't know, I think I paid for my friend's ticket right. just so we could go and have an experience. And I don't regret that at all. But I was so excited. I remember where I was in the stands. And you, the UFC fans were different from WWE fans okay. because obviously for them, WWE is that fake shit. You know, yep. WWE is like, you know, those those fake wrestlers that do this, that. Yep. Now, not every MMA fan is like that by any means, but some of them definitely are. And there's that divide. So it was so weird being in the stands and then, you know, you hear um, like cult of personality come on yep. and it was electric. And being there for it was just staggering. Like, oh, my God. Is this happening? And when I saw him on the big screen, he's walking out. I was like, is he really going to do this? Is this going to happen? Weird, yeah. And the people behind me um, were like, or some people behind me were like, fucking wrestler, kill that fucking wrestler. Like, they really, of course. they had it out for him. And But man, I was just so jazzed. I was so pumped up. And then he just got destroyed. And I was like, <laughs> I was like oh, no. I was like, if he'd like, done like a little bit and then got destroyed sure. that i would have been fine with like give me a show to of course you know but he didn't even get a punch in I know, like right? he basically just yeah he got a takedown immediately yeah, and then yeah then mickey gall got on top of him but it was still such an amazing experience i remember going to a bar afterward with a buddy of mine and um you know all the fans from the q arena um poured out into the streets and were hanging out over there and i see john morrison uh come in over there into the bar nice yeah so you could see some wrestlers around and things like that. I mean, people really turn out for Punk. Um, so, I, like, you know, Punk is one of those guys, like, yeah, personality-wise, I flip-flop on. Sometimes I love him. Sometimes I think, like, man, he's he does some real dickish things. Right. But then other times I'm like, man, he's just a fantastic talent. And there really is nobody like him. It's true. The thing is that, like, if you burn as many bridges as him, but you're still able to do as much as you can, and, you know, if you're so bad at MMA, there must be something special about you. Yep. And he's just, he's like a, a special character. And, when that run that he had in 2011, I mean, that was another level. Exactly. You know, and and to, to me, what draws to him is, is I don't give a fuck personality. I am who I am. If you don't like yeah. it too bad, I have my friends around me. They like me and that's all I need. You know what I mean? It, exactly. It's weird yeah, to it's say, better. but it's, yeah. it's nice. Like, you know what I mean? It, it's a breath of, of fresh air, as they say, in this day and age where everyone's so fake and hiding behind screens and keyboards and shit. It's good to see a guy who actually doesn't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He very much feels like an attitude wrestler in some ways. Like I could totally see him going back to 997 right. and being somewhere in the mix over there. I mean, he was just, um, or 98 or 99. Um, yeah, he just feels so real and authentic in a lot of ways that other people don't. Okay, I'll have to have you back on one of these days again, and we'll just talk a whole episode about MMA, because I'm a huge MMA fan as well, so we could talk all night. So absolutely, let's get into the dumbass of the week. Let's see if this person's a dumbass. So... You've been to the zoo, I assume. Everyone's been to the zoo at least once in their life. I certainly have, a couple of times, absolutely, yeah. You've seen all the nice animals they have there, lions, tigers, and bears, as they say, oh my, right? Yes, I have, yeah, yeah. Did you ever think once, even as a child, to jump in or go over the fence and see what it was like to pet one of these animals? You know, I can't say I have. I thought maybe in the back of my head it would be kind of interesting, but you never thought to actually do it, No. Oh, I don't like the where this is going. This is heading anyplace good. <laughs> All right. So this this dumbass of the week, she decided to, to, vis, to visit the Bronx Zoo and jump in to the, safari, the African lion safari exhibit where they had full-grown lions roaming around. So when this happened, people were observing it. They actually thought that she was part of like the zoo, a zookeeper, or part of the show, because the way she 
came in was like as if she was confident. Then she started like, I don't know, making some signs or some symbols towards the lion. But then something happened where this tipped off everyone else that this woman was batshit crazy. She started to dance like a freak and hissing and pointing at all the lions inside with all the lions oh my in, God. in their den. Is there, wait, wait, wait. Before you continue, is there a video of this? If you if you Google it, I think uh, someone caught it on Instagram and you could see her oh dancing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's what I'm doing directly after this. I'm going to have to call early so I can go see this video. Wow. So now, can you imagine, like, what's going... And, she, and here's the fucked up thing. She didn't get hurt. The, apparently, the lions didn't give two shits about her. I guess they thought she was just as crazy as everyone else and just walked away, apparently. I didn't see the video, so this is all what I read online. And <laughs> she got out, and she was she's still on the run, and the authorities are still wanting to catch her. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Wow. Man, I wonder what her story was, because that's... I mean, that's pretty ballsy to go in there with... I mean, you know, this reminded me of the story at first. It was like Harambe. That's how Harambe, you know, ended up killing Harambe. That's right. Uh, was because that, that kid got, ended up in there. And I don't even think the gorilla ended up doing anything. They just killed him anyway right. on the safe side. So those lions are lucky they're alive to some degree. What is wrong with people? Wow. What, right. That's, that is staggering. I Man, I wonder what she was thinking. Like, maybe it's just like, you know. Do you think she like? Do you think she, like she was high or fucked up on something? Or what's you know what? Either she was trying to commit suicide and be famous in a, some crazy way, or like you said, she was high or uh, hallucinating. Maybe she thought there were like yeah. regular house cats or something. I don't. I don't like. <laughs> I like, like like yourself. I'm a huge cat lover. I own two cats myself, and I wouldn't do anything that crazy. Like I don't even want to go b- beside a tiger. Never mind a fucking lion. Like you know what I mean? I'm good with with the domesticated cats. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean. Wow, and then to do that at the zoo, no less, where right. people watching you as you're about to do this. I wonder what those people in the crowd were thinking. They're probably thinking they're going to watch someone get killed right in front well, of Well, again, us. there's two things that brings, again, this is why she's not only the dumbass of this. There's two things. First off, the fucking zoo. How easy is it for someone to just climb into, to get into the lions, right? Exactly. And then, second yeah. off, the people not going for help and filming it and putting it on Instagram. Classic. That's, that's, a, that's a very classic thing is the whole bystander effect or thinking... You know, if you don't do it, then the guy next to you will. While the guy next to you is thinking it, well, you will. Or the other guy over there will. And then nobody ends up doing anything. Wow. I mean, that's like, I can can totally imagine that. I mean, back when I was in college, I remember this distinctly. So in my student union, um, so this was like where there's like a, there's like a pizza hut. Right. Uh, there's, a, there's a Taco Bell, there's a Pizza Hut, and then there was like this other little grill over there. Anyways, this is where all the students go and they can hang out. And there was this girl over there who's like super messed up, super drunk. Oh my God. And um, she's out there in the, in the food court area of this on the tables. And then she goes and then she just pukes right on the floor, like underneath the floor, just vomits what? everywhere. And then all her friends, instead of being like, Are you okay? Like, let me go, get, go clean this up or whatever. They just take out their phone, they start filming and laughing. And then they of go course. away. Of and course. then the drunk girl, she walks away from her own mess too, doesn't even think to clean it up. And those poor guys, the guys from Pizza Hut, had to go and clean up this drunk girl's mess on like midnight on a Friday. I felt so bad for those guys. That's horrible. But people just, just act like that sometimes. They're just like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take a video of my friend. Right. Or I'll like, you know, take a video of this stranger doing this instead of being like, let's get help, let's do something. Man, people are something else. No kidding. Fucking, uh, again, people know who listen to the show, I hate people myself and i don't know what, what's going to happen in the future but i i i'm i'm very bleak on what's going to end up happening to, to, oh, to human God, civilization yeah, that's, yeah. Oh. <laughs> well on that note <laughs> where where can people get your book i know the the physical copies out now digital copy where people can follow you all that floor's all yours 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, follow me on Twitter. I'm at NBA Jam Book. I post a lot of NBA Jam stuff, but a lot of old video game stuff too, old '90s uh, NBA stuff as well. Um, I've all yeah. The book itself is at BossFightBooks.com. Um, as soon as you go to BossFightBooks.com, you should see it there right from the get-go. If you want to go on, um, and that's where you can buy the paperbacks, and that's where you can buy digital, and then on Amazon, you can buy the Kindle version uh, right nice. now. And um, yeah, that's like five bucks, I think, or four ninety-nine, something like that. So just look up NBA Jam Book on Amazon. Um, but yeah, even if you just Google NBA Jam Book, you should be able to find it. But BossFightBooks.com is the main link. And the print copies have just arrived, and it's so weird having this thing four years later, 68 interviews later, and all that research later being like, okay, wow, this is actually something. And, okay, for contrast, so this is going to be an audio – this is going to be a podcast audio only, so the people listening won't be able to see this. But for contrast, all right, so here is my uh, my publisher's – his book that he wrote for the series. Look at it, and then look at mine. It's like doubled. (laughs) Mine's like the dictionary, and like, yeah. And this is this is a good book too. Very different book, but I really went over the top. This is right. like I read the whole encyclopedia of NBA Jam over here, Jeez. so it's really great to see it out. But yeah, bossfightbooks.com, and I guarantee here's my money back guarantee. I guarantee right. you will learn something about NBA Jam or Midway Arcades. I can guarantee it. Like there's no way that you won't learn something. Hey, I, I give it my stamp of approval. Like I said, I loved it. One of the best books I've read this year, and I couldn't put it down. Two days it took me to read it, so I suggest everyone to go pick this thing up. It's well worth your time, trust me. And for myself, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under Finger Styles. Follow the podcast on Twitter, the podcast DAP. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, comments, anything you want to get off your chest at the podcast DAP at gmail.com. Rewind to the top of the show, support the sponsors, helps them out, helps me out. Obviously, support me directly at my merch store at tpublic.com and all that fun stuff. Subscribe, rate, review on all the major platforms. And like I mentioned on last week's episode, the DP Awards are about to come out. My third annual DP Awards, so you will be nominated for an award, so stay tuned for that, my friend. And I'll have, again, more details coming up. I believe I'm going to drop the nominees on my 150th episode, and then two weeks after that will be the actual DP Awards, so stay tuned where you could vote and all that fun stuff, so make sure to follow me on all the socials. One last question, Rayon, before I let you go. Favorite team to pick playing NBA Jam? Oh, man, oh, man. You see I'm wearing the shirt right now. Is it? Seattle Supersonics. Oh, it's the Seattle Supersonics right here. Okay, we got gotcha. soft spot for them. That's tournament edition. But the original NBA Jam, it's always got to be Socked to Malone on the Utah Jazz. They're, really? They're a cliche. But they're a cliche for a reason because you got the big man, little man combo. But when it comes to NBA Jam tournament edition, that made me fall in love with the Supersonics. So Kemp and Peyton, they hold a special place in my heart. So it's got to be one of those two. But even though there's so many other great options out there, the Bulls, the Suns, the Knicks, I love the Timberwolves, of course, Shaq on the Magic. Right. But it's got to come down to the Supersonics, the Jazz. And between those two, if I can only pick one, it probably would be the Supersonics. <laughs> there, I have two myself. Before the Raptors came yes. into existence, I was a huge New York Knicks fan. So I loved the combo of, again, tall, uh, big man, small man, right? And then also, I can't believe you didn't mention this, the Charlotte Hornets. Who, who couldn't go wrong with Morning and Johnson? Exactly. Man, there's so many great teams in there that we haven't even talked about the Charlotte Hornets and how, how good they were. Yeah. And Larry Johnson, I don't think I put this story in the book, but he owned two NBA Jam cabinets. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, he, he was in an, uh, a commercial for the game. Uh, and his, it sounds weird, but it was like a second longer than it had to be for the, the clip to fit right. Okay. So then a claim was like, okay, we're worried that we're going to have to do something about it. But he's like, if you give me uh, two NBA Jam cabinets will be fine 
So yeah, at some wow. point he had two NBA Jam cabinets, one in his house and one in his mom's house, which was right next door. That's awesome. Well, that's perfect. So on that note, he's Rayon. I'm Steve. This is the podcast. Peace.